So have you ever lost something? Now, I'm not talking about your car keys. I'm not talking about, you know, your earring. And on that note, why is earring one word and car ring two words? It's just a grammatical thing. Somebody can find that answer for me. I'm not talking about losing your car keys, your earring, or your wallet, not even losing your mind, which I imagine several of us have done several times this week. I'm talking about losing more like a, a game. Have you ever been on the losing side of a game? You were the loser in a game of, of football or baseball or basketball, soccer. You were a, a loser in a game of Uno or, or Madden or Parcheesi or or ping-pong, or tug-of-war, or Atari-pong, that you've, you've been a loser before in something. You, you've lost. Most of us could say we've, we've been a loser at least once. We've lost in a game once or twice. But we probably also have been on the other side of that coin, right? We've also experienced what it means to win. We've experienced what it, what it means to, to be in the winner's circle, to have something good happen at the end of that game. Sports philosopher E.C. Lelouch once said this, this is a very simple game, baseball. You throw the ball, you catch the ball, you hit the ball, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, sometimes it rains. That sounds pretty much like life, doesn't it? Sometimes life doesn't work out exactly the way we want it to. Sometimes it just doesn't happen how we hope. Sometimes you make a great grade on a test, Other times, the essay question grates on your every nerve, and you don't do so well. Sometimes the boss gives you a Christmas ham, and sometimes the boss says that your work is as good as pig slop. Sometimes your vacation is full of sunshine, and other times, Tropical Storm Egon shows up on the very first day of vacation, and the whole week is ruined. Sometimes you win, and sometimes you lose. But wouldn't it be fun to win more? Wouldn't it be great if if we had more W's in our life? More more W's at home and at work and at school. More more W's in all the walks of life. More W's on the field and on the court and on the pitch. Yeah, it'd be great to have some more wins. Well, there actually is a way to have more wins. And not just wins that's good for you, but wins that actually are good for the people around you. Your wins can actually help other people around you win. So what kind of winning are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a true win-win situation. And the best way, at least one of the best ways to find out about this win-win situation is by dropping back and looking at the very first church. So listen to Acts chapter 2, a little bit of 46 and into verse 47. Day by day they were having favor with all the people. The first people to follow the risen Jesus, they were winners. Why were they winners? Well, they were winners because they were winning the favor of the people around them. They were winning the favor of the people that they worked with, the people they went to school with. They were winning the favor of the people they went to church with. They were winning the favor of people in the community. They were even winning the favor of complete strangers, people that they did not even know. So what does it mean to win people's favor like this? Well, it doesn't mean that everybody liked them. 
It doesn't mean that everybody liked them all the time and always thought that they were the, the best athlete and the, and the best cook and the best boss and the best employee and the, and the best pastor and the best church member. No, it wasn't they all thought they were the best. And winning favor doesn't mean that the first people in the first church didn't have any enemies. That's not what it means either. No, they, they had enemies. In fact, in the, in the early church, they experienced rejection, accusation, persecution, and even at times, execution. Those don't sound like favorable things. But see, they received all of those things because of the gospel. They didn't receive those things because they were rude and pushy with the waitress at the restaurant. They didn't receive those things because they were rude and pushy with the guy that works in the garden department at the home improvement store. No, they received those things because of the gospel. They received those things because they were people that hated Jesus, and they hated people that followed Jesus, and they hated the message that Jesus had, and they hated hearing that they were sinners in need of a Savior. Now, should that have taken them by surprise that these people did not like them because they were following Jesus? Well, it shouldn't have taken them by too much of a surprise. Long before the night that Jesus was arrested, he said this to his followers. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. You will be hated by all because of my name. Well, that had to help recruiting, right? Everybody loves to hear that. A little later, not long before he was arrested, Jesus said this. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Maybe we should put that on the sign out front in front of the church. That'll pack the pews, right? Jesus says you will be hated if you come to this church and follow him. That sounds like a good marketing plan, right? But these are the things that Jesus says. But just a few minutes after he said that, he said this. John chapter 15, verse 25. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Generally speaking, what does it mean to hate somebody without a cause? Well, it doesn't mean that they don't have a cause. It doesn't mean they don't have a reason. It just means that their reason is not a true, real, legitimate reason of legitimate cause. It means that sometimes a person hates another person for a reason that might be petty or selfish or, or foolish, something that shouldn't be. Let me just give you some, some mild examples here. Most of these should sound familiar, to one or two of us at least. So like the teacher randomly assigned Jenny to be with Bubba Ray in science class and their lab partners, and Jenny didn't even try to get out of it, and she knows I like him, and I'm just really, 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 really mad at her right now. Or, so, I mean, I told mom that I was going to go with the guys to a movie one Friday night before Christmas, and that was this Friday night, but I didn't tell her, and so the movie didn't get over till midnight, and after I got Squints and Hamilton back to their house and go back to the house at 1 o'clock in the morning, mom was mad, she had already called the cops, and so, you know, I'm kind of mad with her now, too. Or, I specifically told my wife I did not want to have a birthday party. And so what'd she do? She went out and bought a birthday cake and ice cream and made me sit at the table with her and the kids and have cake and ice cream. Oh, man, I'm so steamed. Or I specifically told my husband to get Duke's mayonnaise at the grocery store, and he got store brand, so my egg salad was ruined for our dinner guests, and I'm pretty angry with him right now. 
Now, in that scenario, he should have gotten the Dukes. I mean, I'll, I'll give her that. that. That is a pretty big mistake. But, but, but we have an idea of how petty we can be with one another, right? We, we know how to, how to hold grudges and, and even to have a little bit of a hateful, bitter, frustrated attitude that's, that's petty. Our, our cause, our reason is not a good reason. But then there's other times that it may not feel so petty. It might be a little more serious. Our, our reason for anger or frustration or, or bitterness or even hatred might have a, a more serious tone to the cause, but the cause itself is still not real and true and legitimate. Throughout the history of humanity, from the garden until this very day, there have always been people that, that initially express a sense of, of hatred or anger or frustration to people just because of the color of their skin. Just because of the neighborhood that they were born in. Just because of the nation that they were born in. Just because of the things that they own. We're all prone to that. But according to how God speaks in His book, those are all non-legitimate. They're, they're illegitimate. They're actually sinful ways to reason. Sinful causes that we would use to initially recognize any situation. James, the half-brother of Jesus, put it this way. James chapter 2, verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. And then he says this. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So, I mean, the first part, you've got to think, these people in the church listening to this letter being read, they're like, hey, I'm, I'm okay. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good here. The reality is, is that, that I think I'm a pretty decent neighbor. I mean, I, I think I'm pretty loving toward my neighbors. I, I volunteer in places. I give money to charity. I, I think I'm all right. And then James drops the hammer. He says, well, here's the deal. If, if you're doing that, that's great. But if you're not, if you're showing special attention to someone, or if you're refusing to love or serve someone just because they are rich or poor, or black or white, or Republican or Democrat, if those are your favoritisms, then James says you are acting like a low-down, rotten, dirty scoundrel, disobeying the royal law of King Jesus. And just in case, it seems like James knew there would be a handful of people going, I don't know, what's a little favoritism? What's a little partiality? What's, what's a little bit of racism every now and then? I mean, that's, that's not that big of a deal. And so James comes with a more. He goes, well, and if you break this one, then it's like breaking all of them. Now, James doesn't mean that a, that a Christian is going to go to hell if they, if they have one sin in their life. Now, what he's getting at is this, that, that when he heard of the church, when he heard of what was going on in the church, it seemed from what he heard and what he saw that some of the Christians seemed to be a little phony about their Christianity. That there was maybe the possibility they weren't truly redeemed. That maybe there was a, a sin of favoritism or partiality and, and they were hanging on to that sin or maybe some other sin and they were refusing to truly surrender to Jesus Christ. Mel Trotter devoted 40 years of his life to helping the homeless and the needy in the Michigan area and beyond. He said this, 
In the last analysis, there is always just one sin that keeps a man from getting right with God. So is that one sin still in your life today? Are you, if your heart would be honest with you today, are you truly right with God? Not right by your standards, but right by God's standards. Have you turned from sin and and turned to Christ? Are you believing in and clinging to and, and trusting in and relying on Jesus as the only way to be right with God? The people of the early church, they were believing in and trusting in and relying on and clinging to Jesus. And as they did that, as they followed Jesus, people hated them for following Him. But their hatred that they were receiving was not because of them. It was because of Jesus. It was connected to the gospel. It was because they were following Jesus. And because that, that's why they were being hated without cause. Because hating for the cause of Jesus is not a cause. What does that mean? Let's see if I can explain it this way. This is what Jesus said in John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the man who perfectly fulfilled more than 300 prophecies that were specifically about him, hundreds of years after those prophecies were announced, and the man who perfectly lived a life of love and grace and mercy and healing and compassion and truth and justice while he lived on this earth. And the man who perfectly satisfied the penalty of sin, my sin and your sin, because of his voluntary death on the cross and then proved that he had perfectly satisfied sin because he perfectly rose from the dead never to die again. That man, promises perfect, abundant life on this earth and in the life to come. And with all of those promises in just this one Savior and Redeemer, if your response is to reject Him and hate Him and hate His message, then I have a a gracious critique. even, Even if you just look at the evidence recorded by secular historians about Jesus, much less the truth of Jesus from the Bible. To hate and reject Jesus. To make hatred of Jesus your cause. Well, that's simply irrational and illegitimate. It's it's not a cause. It makes no sense. And yet, the people in the first church experienced it all the time. And guess what? It has always been that way. See, some people reject and some people receive. Some people parade to the wide gate and some people run to the narrow gate. And the people of the first church, they received and they ran. They were passionate about following Jesus and some people hated them for it. But some people didn't. With some people, they were attractive. With some people, they were were winsome. And what made them attractive? How did they gain people's favor? What what made them winners? Well, to answer that question, let's let's first look at at what they didn't have that is not why they were attractive winners. Ray Pritchard said this, Here is a church with no building, no paid staff, no programs, no choir, 
No organ, no parking lots, no buses, no contemporary worship, and most amazingly, no internet website. And yet, they seem to get along pretty well. So it wasn't the stuff that made them attractive. It was something else. So what was the something else that was drawing people to these Christians? What was the something else that made them attractive and winsome? What was the something else that was winning people over to the gospel? Well, it's all the stuff we've been talking about for the last month or so. It's all the stuff that we see in this first church. They were daily devoted to God's Word. They were daily devoted to prayer. They were daily devoted to worshiping and praising Jesus. They were daily devoted to meeting together and sharing together. They were daily devoted to showing hospitality to strangers. And guess what? That was attractive. That was winsome. Those were the things that that God used to help them win favor with people in the community. Those were the, the very things that God was using to draw people to the gospel, to draw people to Jesus. Now, does that mean that that everybody that met these people in the first church, they all became Christians and they all got saved? No, that's not what it means at all. Many maybe showed some favor toward these folks, but but then they disappeared. But what did happen was this. There were some people that they saw this gospel being lived out in the lives of these people. And God used that to draw them to the cross, to draw them to salvation, to draw them to the God that saves. And see, these people in the first church, they had a pretty simple life. It was a life marked with devotion, humility, and love. So, not perfectly, but just generally speaking, is that what your family would say about you? Is that what the people that you work with would say about you? Is that what the people that you go to church with would say about you? Is that what your classmates or your teammates would say about you? Is that what the community would say about our church? That that there's some measure, some, some decent reflection of devotion to Jesus, humility before God, and love to God and love to others. Can that be seen in our lives? Hours before Jesus was crucified, he said this to his friends. John chapter 13. Love one another even as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. They will know that you are with Jesus if they see you loving one another. See, that's why they had so much favor with other people. That's why they had favor with the people in their neighborhoods and the people in their homes and the people that they worked and went to church with because they were truly loving one another. See, the early church, they weren't known in the community as the people who were arguing about building styles or dress styles or music styles. They weren't known in the community as people that were arguing over events on the calendar, arguing over church budgets, church budgets, or even arguing over the brand of mayonnaise they use. You know, there wasn't this thing that the the people in the community knew the church as the people who argued over petty things. They knew them as people that loved one another, and they knew them as people who were hospitable to other people. They didn't know them as people that argued about their sports teams and their politics. They just knew them because they loved one another. Now, it wasn't perfect love, okay? The first church wasn't sitting around in each other's houses eating bread and olives and singing kumbaya every night, and you know everything was just all fancy and great. 
Now, they didn't always have it perfect, but what they did do was they had an authentic love for one another. And the reason their love was authentic is because they had an authentic fuel coming into them. The source of their authentic fuel was in one place and one person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus was their fuel. This is how the Apostle Paul wrote it in Galatians 2, verse 20. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the the definition of the love of Jesus, that he would give his life. So a Christian's love is defined by Jesus. A Christian's love is defined by Christ. But guess what? We don't always feel very loving, do we? Some of you are not morning people. You don't feel real loving in Jesus sometimes in the morning. Some of you may not feel loving on Monday morning at 10 o'clock. Some of you may not feel loving at 5 o'clock on Friday on I-26. There's places you may not feel loving. But in those moments when we don't feel loving toward one another, that is when we pray and we ask God to help us to see again that it is sweet to trust in Jesus. That's when we pray and we ask God again, help me to see God. Plunge me beneath that cleansing, healing flood. Help me again to sing to my own soul. Yes, it is sweet to trust in Jesus. Yes, Jesus loved me and He gave Himself up for me. Yes, Jesus loves me, even me. Even me. See, the love of Jesus for the early church, Jesus was their motivator. Jesus was what drew them together. Jesus is what helped them to love each other. It's what Jesus was what helped them to love people they didn't know. It was the power and the love and the authority of Jesus. And here's why that matters today. As you pick up the paper, as you look on your news internet sites, as you listen to the news on the radio, as you sit in breakfast joints and overhear everybody discuss how they can solve all the plans of our country over biscuits and coffee, as we sit and listen to to all the language and all the noise and all the news, we are living in a time where what was happening in this first church is desperately needed again. See, we, we need so much of what was happening in this church. Both inside and outside of the church, what we need first and most is more of the love of Jesus. See, we can have the coolest buildings and the coolest staff and the coolest music and the coolest programs and be the loudest, most annoying, clanging gong in town without the love of Jesus. David Mathis writes this, Once upon a time in a more Christian society, it was easy to distinguish ourselves from other believers by secondary things. Baptist, Presbyterian, Congregationalist, and Episcopalian were among the dividing lines that we used. But in the days ahead, and already now, we will discover that the most important word in our local name is church. That being the church is going to matter now more than anything else. He goes on to say, mere attendance and association will no longer cut it. Maybe we could get by when society was on our side in thin relationships with fellow believers. But as opposition increases, the richness of our life together in the church will matter more than ever. 
the richness of our life together. The only way our life together will be rich is if our love for God is authentic. Mere attendance will not cut it. It will have to be authentic love for God, personally and together as believers. Tom Nelson is a pastor in Kansas. He wrote a book. The title of the book is Work Matters. I believe the subtitle was um, Connecting Sunday Worship with Monday Work. And an excerpt from his book I was reading last week was describing uh, someone known as, as Steve Sample. You may not know Steve Sample's name. For 19 years, he was the president of the University of Southern California. You know that other USC on the other side of the country. For 19 years, he served and, and led the university. At his last commencement address, he was addressing a crowd of about 40,000 people. Some future leaders in our nation were part of those 40,000. And he gave them three questions to consider, three topics for them to think on, three things that he said would greatly impact their lives and what they did with their lives. These were his three questions. The first one, how do you feel about money? The second one, how do you feel about children? The third one, how do you feel about God? 40,000 people, University of Southern California commencement address. What are you going to do with your life? Well, it's going to boil down to this. How do you feel about money? How do you feel about children? How do you feel about God? Tom Nelson writes this. There was pin drop silence. Respectfully but courageously, USC's outstanding president challenged all who had gathered to carefully consider spiritual reality and the profound implications for their lives and our world. I was struck that the integrity of his life and the excellence of his work for 19 years had given him a credible platform and the gravitas to speak boldly of the God he loved and served. Credible. That's a big word. See, he did his job well. So he found favor to speak of the glory of God. The early church, they were credible. And that's why day by day, with complete strangers and even people they've known their whole life, they kept finding favor because they were credible. See, the, the love that they had for Jesus, it was credible, it was real, it was legitimate. The love they had for each other, it was credible. It was real. It was legitimate. Therefore, because of their love for Jesus and their love for each other, their message was credible. It was legitimate. It was real. It was true. If there was ever a time that the Church of America and the church throughout the world needed to look back at the first church, it's now. Because the only way that we can really reach a world that seems to be spinning out of control is to beg and plead for our sovereign God to have mercy. And in his unique way, God desires and he has designed to do some of his greatest work through people like me and you. People who have a credible love for Jesus. People who have a credible love for each other. 
and therefore their message is credible. See, that's the win-win. Our love for God is first and most, and as we love him first and most, it just overflows into love for others. You want to make a difference in the world today? Do do we want this church to be here in 60 years unless the Lord comes before then? Then, friends, we need to passionately pursue our credibility. We need to love Jesus, and we need to love one another. Not so that we can win the favor of the community and they would say how great our church is, but so that the community would see Jesus and they would find love and life and victory in him. That is a win-win.